Welcome everyone to In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson, and today we have a special episode for you recorded in Washington, D.C. at the Association of Corporate Counsel's annual conference. We recorded several episodes at the conference, and I think they are some of the best conversations we've had to date. Longtime listeners may notice that the audio isn't quite as good as we typically produce. We used our travel equipment, so please forgive any technical issues. We've got an exciting topic for this episode, which is money laundering and how to avoid claims of money laundering. We have some special guests with us today. We've got Julie Wood, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Guidepost Solutions, and also Paige Mason from Guidepost Solutions, and our own Claire Rauscher, a former podcast guest. Claire does uh, white collar and compliance work in the Charlotte office of Womble, Carlisle, soon to be Womble Bond Dickinson. So thank you all for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having us, Mark. Thank you. Absolutely. And we're here in Washington, D.C. at the national meeting of the Association of Corporate Counsel, uh, where Julian Page just came from a presentation on anti-money laundering. And I think, uh, let me start by just getting an understanding of what money laundering is. I think when I see money laundering, I think of, you know, gang bosses and dry cleaners and how do the mafia take care of money. But I understand it's more than that. Maybe, Julie, do you want to give us a little introduction to, to money laundering, particularly if we've got some new GCs out there that don't really understand what it's all about? Sure, absolutely. And while money laundering definitely involves the mob bosses and organized criminals of all types, it really is any sort of act in which the proceeds of a crime or other illegal activity are transformed into seemingly legitimate funds or other assets. So criminals have money. It's dirty money. They want to be able to spend it without law enforcement coming after them. And so they want to find a way uh, to place it into something, mix it up with other money, and take out the money so they can spend it and and hopefully fool law enforcement. And that's that's money laundering. And one of the challenges that has occurred over the last few years is that because banks and traditional financial institutions have gotten a better control over the flow of money through their institutions, criminals have had to be more clever. And so they can't just go to a bank with a duffel bag uh, full of cash, although they did do that in the HSBC case, <laughs> but they, they can't just do that. They have to look to other means to launder their money. And so that's where we're seeing other industries get involved. And so today's presentation actually focused on money laundering for the non-compliance lawyer. You know, what are other industries that could be affected and what should they be thinking about in terms of red flags? I've got you. So even if our listeners are not the general counsel of a bank or a financial institution, they actually need to think about and be aware of money laundering. Absolutely. Everyone should be thinking about and be aware of red flags and things that don't make sense. And so they can kind of raise their hand um, because none of us want criminal activity to flow through our business. And there are a lot of ways that criminals are using you know, their illicit funds in our businesses. And we want to kind of focus on that. If you're a GC of a bank, you probably won't learn too much from this session here. <laughs> well, we can have an advanced session later, Mark. Right. Okay. Well, one of the interesting things, though, is that when you talk about money laundering, one of the, the largest groups now that's involved in money laundering are terrorists. Yes, they are criminals in that sense, but the terrorists are always looking for ways to get money, launder money, to continue their operations. 
And that's one of the big focuses of the government as well. And if I could just add, that presents particular challenges because the terrorists don't necessarily need kind of the same amount of money. They often operate in kind of smaller denominations. And so for banks or other institutions to catch terrorist financing can be very tricky. And so it's not the same kind of tools or algorithms that they can use necessarily when they're fighting drug lords as when they're fighting ISIS. Gotcha. So I'm clear, if someone is using my business to money launder, even if I'm not a bank, does my business have exposure? Do I have exposure? What, what kind of risks does, does a business face if they end up you know, being used as a vehicle for this? Well, there are a whole bunch of businesses that are now regulated by the U.S. government and many different agencies, the Department of Justice, the Department of Treasury, the SEC, FINRA, uh, CFTC, and other entities are regulating industries other than banks. So you may be in an industry that's already regulated, but even if you're not, you know, you may kind of come across something where there's a red flag where it would be, um, you know, useful for you to kind of come forward and kind of think about that. And it would depend on the circumstances as to whether or not there would be an exposure for you. But you could get in a situation where your business transaction is kind of tied up or frozen or law enforcement is focusing on it. That sounds pretty scary. Paige, can you tell us what kind of things maybe people should be alert to or what areas where where money laundering can occur? I think especially for sort of to your point about uh, newer in-house counsels or newer GCs, I think getting your arms around what exactly your business does and what your internal clients do and understanding sort of their risk profiles and what sort of transactions they do and what kind of companies they want to acquire and sort of getting yourself involved early on so that you can really spot some of these issues and sort of as Julie mentioned you can AML can sort of arise in a variety of structures right you have sort of more traditional structuring you have sort of traditional laundering activities that banks especially are, are, they know about because they've been spotting these for years, but you also have all these new technologies that are sort of, you know, stepping into areas that are either, they're not regulated now, but just because they're not regulated doesn't mean that there's no criminal exposure. And so I think it's important too for in-house counsels and GCs to really be making sure that they're not just thinking about the regulatory aspects and all the various regulations that come out of some of these entities, but they're also thinking about, is there criminal exposure here? Am I is my company involved in committing some of these predicate offenses, tax evasion, bribery? It can be really run the gamut. Or am I acquiring a company that might be committing some of these offenses? And do I inherit all of these issues by virtue of you know, acquiring this company? So I think, it, I think it's important to sort of be able to ask those kinds of questions. Interesting. So if I'm looking for it or thinking about it, what, what are some examples of ways that non-financial companies have actually I guess, been caught up in money laundering. And I think one of the most common uh, patterns that we're seeing these days involves trade-based money laundering. And so, for example, an exporter could ship $2 million in T-shirts, okay? And then the exporter invoices the importer for $1 million in T-shirts. The importer then resells the T-shirts for $2 million. He keeps the difference of kind of a million. That's kind of trade-based money laundering. So it's over-invoicing or under-invoicing of of goods is something that we see a lot in kind of non 
financial service businesses. And it's certainly a very high priority of the U.S. government and the regulators is looking at kind of trade-based money laundering and thinking about kind of the red flags. And so if you're dealing with transactions, is there something about the transaction kind of that is suspicious and would make you kind of raise your hand? One of the other areas that's a big focus right now for regulators is the area of real estate and, you know, concern that there is rampant money laundering kind of in real estate. And so one of the areas that we see um, risk there is kind of customer risk, um, transaction risk, and then also country and geographic risk. So for example, is the customer coming in with, you know, $3 million kind of in cash to pay? And that's not, you know, kind of uh, something that regularly happens kind of in that area. Or are they flipping the properties very quickly? Or is there kind of unexplained wealth? And so these all get back to kind of knowing your customer, knowing the risk profile and understanding kind of who you do business with. And I think real estate is really an area that the New York Times and journalism is also focused on recently as a very hot area. And so if you're in that field, it would behoove you to kind of look at the anti-money laundering guidelines for real estate professionals that have um, you know been issued and the industry guidance. You know, one of the areas or two of the big places where they've looked into this issue is obviously Miami. Um, there's been a huge influx of purchasing of properties, flipping of properties in Miami, and that's sort of where this whole started. Um, but you go to all the high-value properties, such as New York City, Chicago, and San Francisco. And so that's one of the areas that's really under scrutiny right now. That's exactly right. And you want to be thinking about, you know, is the property owner selling the property for significantly less than the purchase price? And they don't seem interested in getting a better price. Like that's something, if you're a real estate agent or if you're a lawyer handling the transaction, it doesn't make sense, right? Because everybody wants to get the best value. So if they're not at all interested in getting kind of a good price, those are the kinds of things that kind of raise a red flag and that ought to have you consult with um, an attorney or counsel that's experienced in this area. So I want to make sure I understand the process. In the real estate example, if I'm trying to money launder money, how does selling something for less than fair market value help the laundering process? I, I want to get kind of basic. So if my house, if my penthouse in New York is really worth $10 million and I sell it for $8 million, am I getting that where is the laundering occurring? Help me understand that process. You want to walk through that, Paige? Sure. Well, essentially, money launderers or other people, they're looking for legitimate places to park their money, right? So buying a building, buying a house, that's a good way to safely, especially in some of these U.S. cities, to safely park your money. And then you actually own something tangible. So when someone's not concerned about the purchase price, the, really their end goal possibly is they just want to have the money sit somewhere. So it's not about sort of the deal itself, right? And in the, in the cases we've been talking about, what you have in the last, I guess, year or two is these um, geographic targeting orders, which these are the orders coming from FinCEN that focus on these cities, where now you have title companies that have to actually really identify and then report the people behind these shell companies. And so because what you had at the subject of the New York Times article is uh, these massive, complicated corporate webs, and you can never actually figure out who the person was who now owns this multi-billion or million dollar piece of property. And so when you start piecing it together, it takes a lot of work, and these structures are really complicated. But now that these title insurance companies have to actually report that information. And so they would have to take these affirmative steps to do that. So with the property, it really is about the duffel bag full of cash that you were talking about before. It's 
I don't want to have to have this double bag full of cash in my house, so I'm going to go buy a property and not try to negotiate a price or whatever, just because I literally don't want to have a stack of dollar bills sitting in a room somewhere. Well, it can be that, or it can be also with under an invoicing or inflating or deflating the price. If I have $5 million of dirty money in Mexico, and I want to get that money kind of up to the U.S., and so doing an under invoicing or over invoicing is a way to have that money up in the U.S. available, then when I flip the property, it's legitimate, and then I also can kind of add value kind of to that. So it's it's really both. It's not necessarily kind of linear there, but I think we see kind of both trends on that. On the invoicing that you talked about, I assume there would be some complicity with someone in the company to say, yeah, I'll give you these t-shirts for, you know, I'll write up the invoice for a million dollars, even though it's $2 million, so that you can then recognize the the profit of a million dollars, which will clean the money on the other side. Is that typically what you see? That's right. There's often someone kind of on the inside. And so you may have, you know, a t-shirt business, but you have someone who is engaging in criminal activity and procurement that agrees to kind of make the deal. And so it's also often just plain fraud on the company as well Mm. as kind of money laundering that you have to be focused on. And oftentimes the money laundering is found when investigating fraud on the company. Gotcha. So how do we stop it? I guess <laughs> you've identified problems. Are there things that companies can do, and in particular our listening GCs should do, to try to stop this from happening? I think for non-financial institutions or companies that do not think they are regulated, a first good step is to do a risk assessment and understand what kind of business are they doing and where they have potential risks with respect to kind of anti-money laundering issues. And so often what we found is that at companies where they're entrepreneurial, the general counsels don't realize that a small part of the company is now engaging as a, a payment vendor or they're managing Google Wallet, or they're doing something else that subjects them to AML regulation. So a first step is really a risk assessment. What's my business doing? Where are the potential kind of money flows? Do I have kind of a financing arm? Am I doing things that kind of implicate kind of money laundering? And then FinCEN has developed four now going to be five kind of pillars to think about if you need to have kind of a money laundering program, we can talk about those. You mentioned FinCEN for our listeners uh, that may not know all the acronyms. What does that stand for? FinCEN is the Financial Crime Enforcement Network. It was um, started, I think, in 1990 or so to really, and it's very much expanded its purview in terms of focusing on kind of financial crimes. And they provide kind of a lot of guidance and have really also provided a lot of kind of regulatory authority in this area. And so the FinCEN pillars are really looked to as as the gold standard. Gotcha. Well, if it's something, something's referred to as pillars, it sounds like we need to mention it in the in the podcast. Does anybody, I think we do. Does anybody I, know what those I pillars know. are? We going to go around yeah. in order? Can Can you name the next pillar? Who can name a pillar for us? All right, I'll and, name number one. <laughs> uh, develop and maintain internal policies to ensure compliance with okay. the various statutes, whether it's the Bank right. Secrecy Act or any of the fins or whatever. So right. that's number one. Thanks, Claire. Um, independent testing, uh, the BSA, AML, Bank Secrecy Act, or AML compliance. Thanks, Julie. Uh, third one, designating someone who's responsible for day-to-day compliance. So you need to have someone who really owns this 
subject matter in this area. All right. Thanks, Paige. So you actually have to, I mean, that you're supposed to have someone that's thinking about the money laundering in yes. the company. Before we move on to the next pillar, is that usually the general counsel or the finance officer? Where, where would that responsibility lie in a mid-sized company? It often resides in compliance or in legal, uh, talking about entities that are not kind of fully regulated or entities that are only kind of have a small portion of, of regulation. And so right. in, in some companies like residential mortgage um, loan originators, they might have someone who's a chief compliance officer and also handles the anti-money laundering duties. In a bank, you'd have to have someone, of course, to kind of designate for that, to that. Or, or for a money services business or some other area where you really need a focus. Depending on the size of the entity, you would need someone kind of dedicated to that full time. Again, it's very much based on the risk. And so we're kind of looking at kind of what's the risk, what are your activities, and um, that kind of drives who the right person is. Just to add on to that, I think um, sort of the main reason for having someone designated is, is it, first of all, it's ownership, but second, I think the tendency can be really to some outsource some of these activities, and then it's hard to pinpoint who missed the issue, who's actually responsible, and then this person, whoever it is, is also supposed to be doing training. Their employees are supposed to know about these issues, and they're supposed to really be responsible for some of the technology and the tools that they use to spot these suspicious transactions and to actually do something about them, possibly reviewing these transactions. So it's sort of making, I hate to use the expression, the buck stops here, but it's someone is supposed to be responsible, and they're supposed to impart that knowledge. And I think that's a, a great point. The buck stops here is one of the real risks for chief compliance officers and the anti-money laundering officers is now the, there's been a huge focus on individual liability and really looking for when things go wrong, as they often do, you know, looking to see was there someone who did not perform their duties and could, should that person be fined? Should they be excluded from the industry? And I think that is a real kind of heightened risk that we've seen over the last couple of years since the Yates memo um, issued by the former Deputy Attorney General. I mean, is jail an option? Jail's an option. Uh, usually. <laughs> yeah, jail, jail is definitely an option. Yeah. Um, you know, compliance uh, officers are at risk, especially if they know something and they don't do anything about it. So um, it's, a, it's a huge issue. And where we see for our clients the most kind of trouble in this area is when a company doesn't realize that they are subject to regulation. They maybe they're in a fintech or they're in something that's kind of emerging and they don't really understand kind of what their risk is. And that's where I think they can get kind of most in trouble because then, then they're not kind of fully complying with everything. They're not really doing things. The regulator doesn't, you know, doesn't accept that as an excuse. Yeah. I mean, when you say pass the buck, it makes me nervous about... You know, you want to get, uh, you want that buck passed to somebody else. If it's going to be, if it's going to be fines or exclusion, right? You, you need to think carefully before you accept the responsibility of being the designated anti-money laundering person at your firm, right? It, it, I mean, it's a real responsibility. If you're going to do it, you need to make sure you're doing it right. But you don't want to be designated and then not do anything with it. That, that's exactly right. It's a real risk um, for you to accept that responsibility and then either not have the funding, not have the resources, not have the know-how in order to execute properly. Because the regulator won't accept that you couldn't get the resources or that you didn't kind of know how to do it. They're going to hold you accountable. And so I think it's a big task to agree to serve in that role. And, you know, you, you really got to make sure that you have the company behind you in order to succeed. 
All right. Well, I think we have three pillars, so we're yep. still a little shaky. Anyway, Claire, <laughs> yeah, we can, have number can four. you give us number four? <laughs> number four is you've got to conduct those compliance, the, the compliance training. You've got to get out there and make sure that the folks that are working with you uh, know what the rules are and follow it. Uh, if they don't have, you don't have the adequate training, obviously all the various regulatory agencies will be all over you. So it's actually one of the keys of the five pillars. Sounds good. And while most groups are supported by four pillars, I gather we have five here for a uh, belt and suspenders approach. Do we know what the fifth pillar is? The fifth pillar, the newest pillar that we're all <laughs> they wedged anticipating. One in. They wedged this one in in the center. So uh, the four pillars, and now we have number five. It, uh, it, it is going into effect on May 11, 2018. So this is oh, an, okay. a new pillar that's only going to apply to covered institutions, so financial institutions, banks, broker-dealers, mutual funds, future commissions, merchants so it's not as broadly applicable but it's dealing with beneficial ownership and it's putting into place for the first time a real requirement around identifying kind of beneficial ownership knowing you know more deeply down to the 25 percent level who your customers are and so i think that is you know obviously causing a lot of heartburn for some of these covered institutions they not only have to go down to the 25 percent level um, to know the beneficial ownership but they also have to fully understand the risk profile of the client and uh, make sure they're conducting ongoing monitoring and so this is something FinCEN actually came out with the final version of the fifth pillar i think one week after the panama papers so there's been a lot of concern about beneficial ownership this has been um, there's a lot of activity internationally in this area and fincen kind of finally moved forward but it's going to be a big step for the banks and the covered institutions to determine ownership down to the the 25th percentile. Julie, when you say 25th percentile, explain, you mean who owns at least 25% of the company? Is that what you're looking at? That's right. And that's not always obvious, and that wasn't always required. And so you may have kind of thousands of clients or hundreds of thousands of clients where you didn't require that sort of information, and they had kind of shell companies or other things to kind of disguise that for good or ill purposes. And now you're kind of having to kind of get behind that. And so this is not just a U.S. trend. This is something that is being required in various means kind of throughout the world. Many banks already go down to the 10% level of ownership for high risk. So 25% overall is not extraordinary, but it is going to be some work, particularly for some specialty financial products. I mean, because I think for a long time, people figured one of the benefits of setting up a company is to disguise ownership, right? You have, you know, I, I mean, I think, again, I don't know for, who those people are, for, but, you know, you for, know, for good or ill, but I think, you yeah. know, people will say, well, I don't want my name on the business, so I'm going to be Acme Corporation, and, you know, and it's going to be owned by MPH Corporation, which is ultimately owned by Mark Enriquez. And it may be because it's unsavory business, or it may be because, uh, you know, I don't want my wife to know about it. I mean, there's lots of reasons. But right. I think what you're saying is with this fifth pillar, if I own more than 25%, they're going to have to know who I actually am. Well, and I think there are a lot of legitimate reasons to have this kind of structures that you talk about or reasons that may not be fully legitimate but may not be problematic from an AML perspective. <laughs> um, and so, you know, these financial institutions and cover institutions that already do business with you, they've got to understand. And so if, if you are legitimate but you just um, – you want to do it this way because you don't want media coverage on this or that that's a different thing versus you set this whole thing up to disguise kind of where your money is coming from and the source of your wealth which is illicit funds 
clarify uh, am one of these uh, businesses and I am met with either a, a subpoena I assume or I get a phone call from the FBI or, or what have you uh, and, and so I immediately call you because that's what I would do. And that's a smart move. Like <laughs> I, uh, Always smart to call Twitter. What Get out I, of jail. <laughs> <laughs> what can I expect? I mean, as far as, you know, if I really am not necessarily, you know, there was no actual, you know, malice or whatever intended, what can I expect? I mean, am I just SOL or? or? Well, I mean, there, there are a lot of different aspects to that. I mean, it really depends. It's always facts-driven. I mean, every investigation, every inquiry by any regulatory agency is fact-driven. Um, a lot of it, it has to do with knowledge. Um, if you have any knowledge that there's a problem and you ignore it, that's a problem. But um, these days, if you don't have the right systems and internal controls in place, especially the company um, is in the crosshairs. Individuals will always be scrutinized but the company is the one that's in trouble. And if you know, you're a publicly held company that could really ruin your stock price, if you're a privately held company, it could lead you to essentially go into the ground. Um, there's a lot of various aspects to that. It really depends on who the agency is and what the conduct they're alleging occurred. That's why there's so many aspects of risk management and uh, that are so key to assessing what those risks are and addressing them. If you ignore them, you don't address them and you're in a lot of trouble. One of the things that we've seen recently, not in AML cases necessarily, but in other cases, is that DOJ is imposing a monitorship and is still going after executives after a monitor is in place. If you look at Volkswagen, if you look at Tenet, you know, these are cases where they have a, a monitor, you know, so the company has already paid the fine or kind of gone forward, and then DOJ is still going after the executives. I think that is a very troublesome in terms of individual liability, in terms of having kind of a monitor there while there are other potential targets that are ongoing, and I would not be surprised to see that in an AML case. Yeah, and monitors obviously do exist in AML cases, and it's an onerous uh it's just onerous. The company is required to pay for the monitor. The monitor is there literally every day in the business overseeing what they do and quite frankly looking for issues. And it's a very stressful situation. It's a stressful situation for the company, for the employees and the executives. For example, um, I'm aware, I mean this is public knowledge, but you know there's certain banks that have more than one monitor. They have a monitor from um, the state of New York, they have monitors from the Federal Reserve Bank, they have monitors from the court after DOJ intervention. So you can have more than one. Mm. Uh, it's a very, very costly and difficult situation. So, you know, that's one of the reasons you want to do the training and the risk assessment and all these various things to avoid that. I think that's absolutely right, to try to avoid a monitor kind of at all costs, but then also really thinking about if the company has an ability to choose a monitor, if you're in that role, trying to find you know someone that has a track record of working well. Because right. I think there are different monitors have different mindsets about kind of how to do things and how to make sure that a company is successful, and there are different perspectives on that. And so really focusing on your due diligence, not only in the settlement language, because you can really kind of change the scope of the monitorship, 
monitorship and the settlement language, but then also in the selection of the monitorship, I think is absolutely critical. Again, to the point of if I am one of the, an organization that has come under some scrutiny or is being investigated or has been subpoenaed, uh, how much exposure does that create for my other clients? And do I have any obligation or do you uh, suggest making your other clients aware of that situation? Well, you t <laughs> a lot of this stuff is done in secret. Um, you know, the government is not allowed to disclose some of these things. Now, if you're a publicly traded company, you're required to disclose some of this information. And of course, then your clients find out about it. Whether the clients are exposed to it really depends on what the actual activity is. And sometimes you may be required to let them know. Sometimes maybe your clients are the ones who are involved. That's a very slippery slope. But you know, sometimes you're required to notify your clients. And sometimes it has great impact on your clients because you there are other collateral consequences from some of this. You can be barred from various activities. There's a lot of things that can go on through that. But you may be required to tell these your clients, and then of course your business is in a lot of trouble. So it's a it, it can be very devastating to a business. Julie mentioned the, the Gates memo earlier, and I know there's been some talk about whether that's going to be... The Yates memo. The Yates, Yates, Yates memo. Yates. Sorry. I Yates hope I memo. said Yates. No, I think you probably said Yates. I heard, I heard, I heard Gates, so... <laughs> different person. The Yates, no, yeah, we're talking about the Yates memo of the Attorney General. Right. Um, there's been talk about that changing or being revised. I'm interested, Julie, Claire, Paige, any thought? I mean, is that likely to happen? Is it gonna be a substantive change? Well, well, Rod Rosenstein, who's the new Deputy Attorney General, indicated in a speech to the Heritage Foundation that he was going to make some changes to the Yates memo. And it's not unusual as a new administration comes in for the new leadership to put its stamp on the memo. There was the Thompson memo, you know, there's kind of all these versions of the DAG memos. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think there will probably be some tweaks, but both um, Rod and Attorney General Sessions have said they think individual liability is still important, that you can't just prosecute corporations, that in some instances you also have to prosecute individuals. So I wouldn't expect that the changes would be earth shattering, but you know, I do think there'll be some kind of tweaking around around the edges. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that every DAG has their memo and we <laughs> will see Rod Rosenstein's memo coming out probably in the near future. But I think it's impossible for him to say that they won't go after individuals and corporate individuals and executives. But uh, my guess is they will, he will dial it back. I don't know how he's gonna do that, but I, my, that's my guess. But we'll see. I mean, this is all speculation. We're gonna have to wait till it comes out. Sounds good. Well, we're about out of time for the podcast, but let me give each of you a chance to see if you've got any final parting suggestions for uh, those GCs out there. We've talked about what it is, what to look out for, um, and a little bit of the consequences that can come from money laundering. Let me, Paige, I'll start with you. Any final uh, parting suggestion or remark, particularly for those younger GCs out there that have just begun to hear about AML? Sure, thank you. I mean, I think especially some of the newer GCs or, or GCs in smaller companies, you're often working in, in really exciting environments. Um, your companies are deploying new technologies. They're doing really new and interesting things. And so it can be a fun time and a really good 
opportunity, but it also can be sort of overwhelming because of the expansions into new industries and, and sort of figuring out where your company sits in the regulatory atmosphere. So I think I would emphasize one of the, our takeaways that we had on our panel earlier today, which was that you should really find sort of resources that you trust, whether that's other GCs in your industry, whether that's other groups of people that can you can really sort of benchmark what you're doing with what they're doing. You can find out about sort of new cases and really sort of have resources that you can rely on that aren't just within your own um, company. So I would just want to emphasize that as sort of a final takeaway. Thank you. A great tip. Julie? I, I would say a great tip, Paige. <laughs> um, but that, you know, AML affects many more industries than just banks. And so to think about if you're a GC or kind of a new GC, to think about what is my business doing? What am I doing? Where is my exposure both here in the U.S. and internationally? And do I have any potential exposure either for regulation or areas where people could abuse my business for nefarious means and for anti-money laundering? And so to really do all kinds a hard look, a risk assessment, and I think that can really pay off in terms of finding out whether or not you need to register as a regulated entity or whether you need to take other steps or whether you're in the clear, that all you need are kind of some very basic red flags. But the world is kind of getting smaller in terms of what the regulators expect. They expect you to know more. They expect you to know more about your customers and dive more into the data. And so kind of take a stab and do that now before they come knocking at your door because then it'll be a little bit too late. That's great. Great. I think we're saving people uh, fines, jail time, bad stuff. <laughs> we're doing it now, Claire, so you don't have to be pulled in. Oh, so. I don't know about that. But, you know, the key is there's, there's a lot of resources out there. Uh, um, you know, you've got um, FINRA and FinCEN. Their websites have tons of information. So, you know, if you're sitting there going, hmm, I'm not really sure about what's going on here, look into that. But if you have a significant question, like all of a sudden you realize I'm not feeling comfortable, I think there's a problem, you've got to go out there and get other, um, other advice. And I'm not just saying because I am one outside counsel, but it's too important. You don't want to be putting your career at risk, your company at risk, etc. If you've got questions, ask them. It could be nothing. And you know, you pull yourself out of that situation. And if it is something, address it as fast as you can. Um, but, you know, sometimes what we see is people say, gee, I, I saw it, I thought about it, but I ignored it. That is the worst thing that can happen to you. So, you know, be proactive and, uh, and, and, and things will work out. Great. Great tips all the way around. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our other episodes from the ACC Annual Conference, which will be rolling out every two weeks. You can download or stream those and other past episodes or subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or visit our website at womblebonddickinson.com forward slash US forward slash podcast. As always, I welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. This has been In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.